Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD title. Deutschland ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Wachstum. Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen 60 Mal mehr. Hi, it's Michelle. Hey, this is Ted. And it's Isaac. And welcome back to Spaßbremse. We've got a very special guest on the podcast today. It's uh, Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Thank you for having me. So far on the podcast, we've we've really focused on on Germany itself, obviously, given the theme, you know, looking at history, culture, politics, um, and so on. But today we wanted to to go beyond, you know, the immediate country of Germany and looking at the people that left it uh, often quite a while ago. There's obviously large German diasporas in a number of countries, um, most uh, infamously probably Argentina and other hmm. South American countries. <laughs> um, but we're going to look at the biggest and um, strangely, given its size, probably the most invisible one. And that's right. We are talking about German Americans, um, specifically the United States of America. Sorry to uh, the Canadian on the podcast. I, mean, I might Isaac. insert my own little German Canadian. Right, right. We're going we're to focus knowledge. on the big one in, in the USA. So if you want to chime in about Canada, you can go for it. So yeah, the, the largest ethnic group in America, according to the census, uh, between 40 and 50 million people. So well over, you know, 10, 10 15%. But uh, strangely invisible as a group, and we'll get into the reason why that is. Um, you know, there there's no... There's no like Sopranos of German Americans or like uh, like the St. Patrick's Day parades to the extent that those are, you know, there's isolated German stuff, but nothing is widespread, which is interesting given that it's a far larger group than either Italian American or Irish Americans. Um, and yet it just has a, a fraction of the cohesive identity. So we want to we want to get into why. Uh, first, though, you know, striving for accountability on this podcast Uh, let's let's do a Germanness acknowledgement. You know, any any <laughs> German roots, German roots ties with German cultural institutions. I'm ashamed. Any, anything Dad, I'm else? Ashamed like, yeah, we've. I, I know. I, I would venture a guess that we all ha we all have a little bit to disclose here. So so let's get that out of the way. Matt, do you want to lead us off? Yeah. So my last name is Christman, which is a German name. My uh, mother's maiden name is also uh, hilariously German. I come from. Uh, coastal Wisconsin, uh, which is just north of Milwaukee, basically, which is the top point of the uh, German triangle of um, Midwestern cities that constitutes Milwaukee, Cincinnati, and St. Louis. So I grew up with uh, German Catholics, mostly, because this is largely an area that was settled by, uh, by people from southwestern Germany in the 19th century. So uh, a lot of Friday fish fries, a lot of beer alcoholism which is like the worst kind you can have but which is uh, an august german american tradition uh you know schnapps in the freezer that kind of thing bratwurst hell yeah yeah wisconsin being the the number one drinking state in america by by quite a margin i believe oh, yeah. uh yeah um did, did go to undergrad there so experienced a bit <laughs> of that <laughs> uh michelle uh well yeah disclose? i i guess i'll talk about the name thing later but um I did go to school in Pittsburgh and I worked at like one of those restaurants that uh, is basically like a Hofbräuhaus, you know, like I had to like wear the Classic. dirndl 
and um like i hosted there and so you would get a bunch of people coming in and be like being like i'm german <laughs> yeah. you're like oh okay cool <laughs> like drinking the steins and all of it so uh seeing a bit of it like come through the latent german americanness when they like get really proud about like research there's been a resurgence yeah. of that a bit what about your last name oh okay so i will uh, yeah my last name is hayner with a y which is obviously like an Americanized Heine. Yeah, H-A-I-N-E-R. Yeah. Exactly, like yeah. The, like the Anglis is it. Yeah, yeah Anglis. And so, so, Matt, I would, I would figure with, with Chris Men, it's one N, right? Yes, it's one N. I think they lost the, uh, the other N somewhere along the line. But my mother's maiden name has two Ns at the end. Really? Okay. So somebody did that on purpose? Like, do you think each family went... And just well, they, made their name more. I mean, my understanding of it is there's, you know, some some kind of like the iconic like dropping at Ellis Island sort of thing of like a miss, you know, uh, mistranscribing it or whatever. There's some of that. Um, there's also some of uh, like maybe people just trying to fit in when they're there. But it was especially the World Wars and people trying to hide their German identity. And there were some really like profound uh, shifts in this, you know, like your uh, Müller to, to Millers and so on were, were, were quite famous. So it's, it's tough to know exactly in each individual case why they did it, but it's a really widespread phenomenon of kind of kind of transferring um, names to a, a more sort of American sounding thing. Isaac, do you want to go next? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, I, I think I maybe have like the most like historically proximate German connection. My, my opa moved to Canada in the uh, early 60s. Um, and so, you know, grew up very much in that uh, sort of more recent like German immigrant experience. My mom's family is like very, yeah, uh, kind of steeped in that like very like culturally German. Um, yeah, a lot of like German Christmas traditions uh, that I had growing up. My dad's side of the family is like kind of representative, I think, of the more like very distant Canadian uh, German um, sort of uh, migration patterns. I mean, I remember growing up like there was always talk about like our Prussian ancestors, which oh, I always God. found like, especially like, I mean, now looking back, like especially alarming. I also don't even know if that's true. Like I, I mean, I did some research recently and I think they were from like Schwerin. So like, I mean, I guess that was Prussia, but it's not it's really like, it's not really like when you think of like Prussia. Um, but yeah. anyway, yeah. So you've still got the umlaut. In the yeah. Name, right? I mean, that's, I still have the umlaut. I have the two ends. Nice. I've got it all. You're just German. You're not even German American. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got some. I've got some like buried Germanness, not not in the name or anything, but like everybody, uh, just sort of like lurking there on both sides of the family. Um, like I said, you know, uh, went to went to college in Wisconsin, which had a lot of uh, a lot of Germanness infused in there, which I'd, I'd be curious to hear more about um, from from Matt, especially. Uh, and I mean, the three of us obviously ended up in Germany, which actually is indicative of a recent trend where there was a like, huge net inflows of Germans to the US uh, for, for over a century. And now actually since 1990, uh, there's been a net outflow of Americans to Germany, which doesn't exactly speak well for the sort of triumphalist end of history state of the, the global superpower that people are actually going net the other way. So before we get into a bit of the, the history here, which I think it's worth doing a kind of overview because it explains why Germans are where they are. Um, I'd be curious, Matt, like, your experience as a as a Wisconsinite, like, what do you what do you make of like the status of, of German American identity currently? Like, how how strong is it? How does it manifest itself? Or really, any thoughts there? Well, as you said, the Germany does German Americans don't have the uh, 
tradition of uh, sort of ritually reifying uh, their identities the way that other uh, ethnic whites do. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the, the, the world wars and everything, you know, a little awkward. Uh, so what ends up happening is, is that, yeah, uh, it gets in the Midwest anyway, where, you know, German uh, influence is, is most strongly felt. It, it, it just becomes this like background radiation of uh, cultural norms that are really just vi- slight variations on the general American, you know, emphasis on consumption as identity. Only, you know, in in the case of Germans, it's, you know, maybe a bratwurst instead of a hamburger. But it's basically still stuffing a dead cow in your mouth. Yeah, I think that that sums it up pretty well. I mean, it, it's it's always alluded to in like a weird way, right? Like someone, when they want to justify, they're like, well, we're German, so we have a really strong like work ethic or whatever. And it's like, I hear that a lot. Like, I know some families that like dig up, like they're like, this is our German family crest. And it's like, you probably just overpaid some guy who's like ripping you off that makes this thing that, you know, inevitably looks kind of fascist that they'll like have hanging in their house. Like those are the real oddballs that, that emphasize that. I know a few people like that from back home. Yeah, I, I think anybody who's really trying to grasp at German identity is they're looking for something and they probably look very uh, uh, enviously at all those, at all those, uh, you know, uh, St. Patrick's day marchers and stuff. But, you know, uh, I think that does just show uh, a a hollowness that they can't confront otherwise, because, you know, part, part of what, uh, part of what makes the German American identity is so interesting is how, how much it committed uh, in the 20th century to full assimilation very quickly too i mean there were yeah. there were german language uh, newspapers all throughout the midwest that just disappeared almost overnight in the early 20th century uh yeah. and you know to kind of go against that uh, means like there's something that isn't sitting well some other way that you're you're searching you know as we all are and, and i think honestly i wouldn't be surprised if it becomes more if, if, if trying to resurrect like a German identity doesn't become more of a fixation as people feel, you know, continually more uh, uncertain and, and uh, dissatisfied with uh, their lives as they know them. Yeah, I mean, I definitely know some kids from Pittsburgh who seemed very unmoored and then they start talking about that their strong jaw jawline is like Ooh, of a German indicative yeah. of like right, a German uh, yeah. past and that's uh that's what you know. Yeah. You're really that, struggling. That's, that's not encouraging. Like it just I mean, I think really emphasizing like niche or like any kind of like European heritage really hard as like an American is is a bit bizarre and like obviously given german history that has to be infused with like a bit more of a right-wing thing i i think generally like my basic rule of thumb is like you're just a hundred percent american if none of your grandparents could speak a foreign language like, yeah like no absolutely like that's why for me like uh it's fun to think about and you know especially just looking you know at the contours of settlement in this country and and like recognizing the echoes of historical patterns of migration and ethnicity and all that. But like, as a part of your identity, it's like, come on, if, if everybody, you and your family uh, speaks English, you're an American yeah, and that sucks. Absolutely. People don't want that to be true because what is American, but you know, eats burger and then people want more, <laughs> even though they want to eat burger. That's not like that. you take, you try to take their burgers. They will fucking end you. But they want to be more than burger, and so they the they broad try to versus fl- so well, elegant. But they're, they're not something else that doesn't exist. 
they're not willing to go full like like uh Schweinhaxe or like uh you know like the real hardcore german food like they'll eat the bratwurst but like the really gnarly shit yeah like they, they won't like they won't even touch that so like you said it's like they want a little flavor of the identity but not, like they don't want to really commit no one's gonna actually learn german anymore oh like, good god no the most hardcore thing that i remember from my childhood is eating cannibal sandwiches which I, I I'm assuming what has some that? sort of echo in 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 German uh, culinary tradition. Do you guys know what those are? No, no. I'm terrified. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's raw ground beef uh, on rye bread with pepper and raw onion. Oh, okay. So like so a met- like a steak tartare on bread, basically, like but eagle. ground beef, which you're generally yeah. you know not Nasty. supposed to eat raw. Absolutely. I, I think it was more popular when people would like go to a butcher as opposed to a grocery store. So they had right. more confidence in what they were getting. Well, I remember like visiting Germany when I was 10 and going to visit the farm relatives and we ate exactly that. The farm relatives. <laughs> yeah. The farm relatives who had like lost fingers from getting them stuck in threshers and yeah. That's wild. I mean, and yeah, when we talk about like the the assimilation of German Americans, it's not to downplay like the sort of bizarre pockets that there are still left of like oh, yeah, German yeah. language and German culture. And so, what we mean by like the the overall assimilation is is assimilation relative to how many people it is. And so, yeah, it's, it's wild. It's, yeah, by exactly. far the largest uh, uh, percentage of of white ancestry in America. Uh, and I think a, the, the the part of what made it uh, you know kind of fade. Uh, relative to other ethnicities is, as we said, the world wars. But uh, I think another big part of it is the chronology of immigration to the United States. Uh, the first, re- There were, of course, Germans in America even during the colonies. Uh, Benjamin yep. Franklin famously complained all the time about all the krauts he was surrounded with uh, and, and how they were going to like de-anglify America and how, how swarthy they were. Uh, but the real big bursts begin at like in the in the in the in the middle of the 20 in the 19th century uh around the time of you know the the 48 revolution and the associated agricultural distress that left a lot of uh you know former farmers and such uh, uh without access to sustenance and sort of forced across the ocean but a broad swath of the population you know uh people from all sort of classes uh, and uh, people who had come from generations of, you know, established yeoman peasants uh, came to America. And in that moment when land was really easy and cheap for the taking for European immigrants, uh, largely uh, upon getting to the East Coast, moved inland uh, and, and got that land. Some of them stayed. Uh, the uh, There's a neighborhood in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, the Upper East Side of Manhattan called Yorkville. Uh, mm-hmm. Which until the mid twentieth century was known as a German neighborhood. It was a it was a uh, hive of Bund activity during World War II, actually. Uh, but um, but for the most part, you had this huge move inland to claim some of that land, and so very quickly the social bonds uh, that had held a lot of these people to their German identity started being just dissolved by the fact that they were you know uh, recreating themselves as American farmers. Then they settled in cities where they did settle were in the Midwest, like I said, like Cincinnati, uh, Milwaukee, uh, St. Louis. And there they created the kind of robust ethnic identity that we we identify with the other ethnicities. Uh, But in the East Coast, which is, you know, that's the, the headquarters of America culturally and economically, they ended up not sticking around for the most part. The people who stuck around were first the uh 
the Irish who were showing up around the same time, but in a vastly more destitute position, uh, unable for the most part to access the, the capital that would have let them go inland and become farmers. So they stayed sort of huddled in those East Coast cities. Uh, uh, and the Irish ethnicities that we think of now are largely like a political response to that situation of uh, finding a way to organize themselves and to gain some sort of access to economic stability uh, in, in the absence of any access to capital, which ended up just being like their sheer numbers and ability to move votes in elections. And that gave them the ability to uh, uh, gain access to rungs of political power and then gain uh, access to the burgeoning civil services that had to emerge to uh, deal with these you know, uh, rising cities. So Irish identity in America is like a politicized, really, uh, attempt to assert economic power uh, in the, the American, you know, East Coast metropolis. And Germans were doing that in the Midwest too, but, you know, far farther from the eye of culture, sort of, uh, you know, uh, in the, what was, it wasn't a flyover then yet, obviously, but it was like the uh, train tr- through, I guess. Uh, and <laughs> then, so like in the rural areas where you had a vast amount of, of German immigration, you know, the process of Americanification was happening almost immediately. And then the world wars did the job of uh, sort of breaking up those uh, pockets of German identity in the cities that did still exist. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and as Matt, um, you alluded to a lot of the history and we'll, we'll get into a little more detail about that. Cause I think it's quite interesting. And um, also you mentioned the, the geography of course, and it's, it's really, really concentrated. I mean, the, they say there's sort of a German belt yeah. um, that that stretches, you know, about from the sort of Pennsylvania across to Oregon. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's not as strong in the West, right? Like it's really, really concentrated around the the Great Lakes. Sort of, mm-hmm. you know, if you're on the the western shore of Lake Michigan in Wisconsin, all the way down uh, through Chicago, a little farther south, St. Louis, and then stretching through Pennsylvania. I mean, you can see it on these maps. We'll, we'll try to link to one. Yeah. Um, it really shows this like sort of bright red of the concentration of the Germans along that like kind of broad L shape. Yeah, the uh, pop uh, belt. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, Although weirdly plenty- enough, where I'm from, right on the coast of Lake Michigan, they, we say soda, but like literally one county inward, it's, it's pop, and it's pop all the way to the east west coast practically oh that's funny i didn't From make that, that uh, on that are you diagonal. are you soda in in boston yeah we're soda. okay we're, we're soda in washington what are you in canada i think we say pop okay yeah. interesting the, the pop belt go, or goes across the border to canada yeah. yeah and so yeah i mean i think another thing that that you um mentioned or alluded to matt is is the sort of lack of like a cohesive identity of of the German Americans, and I think that also has to do with, um, like you said, the the political situation at the time, because obviously you have the the failed eighteen forty eight revolution, um, you have, and then shortly thereafter, like the the Homestead Act in America. So you're having political upheaval in Europe at the same time as they're opening up a bunch of land in the United States, mm-hmm. and at the same time, it's also it's also worth pointing out in in terms of the the lack of uh, a cohesive identity is. It's not like there was a single sort of um, unifying religion in Germany in the same way there was in other countries where there was strong immigration to the U.S. Obviously, there were a lot of both Protestants and Catholics um, immigrating in large numbers. And of course, Germany itself was not even a country until 1871. So people might have had a German ethnic identity, but they might have associated more with their specific region, their specific religion, um, and not seen themselves as really a member of a German nation at the time they moved to the U.S. So it's 
it's it makes sense that the bonds were slightly more on a cultural and linguistic front than they were nece- like a national front per se. Yeah. I mean, the closest thing to like a unifying political uh, current that unified that that brought together certainly the urban Germans of that era was uh, socialism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was simply undigestible by the United States. Like uh, the Irish political project, as I said, was was a pragmatic effort to access, you know, political and economic power uh, in conditions of deprivation, plus resentment of English imperialism, which were to one degree or another not challenging any of the real prerogatives of America of the American state project, whereas the implicit socialism uh, of a lot of the German culture, you know, which of that time, which, you know, led the uh, urban Germans to be vehement opponents of the Confederacy during the Civil War. Yeah, they fought uh, in huge and, numbers in the war yeah. against the South, yeah. Missouri was prevented from seceding, formally from the Union, essentially by uh, a bunch of uh, German militiamen in St. Louis who uh, were able to rally together to prevent uh, the capital from being claimed by uh, slave power uh, sympathizers in the, in the state. Uh, and German immigrants were... Uh, lynched in uh, East Texas uh, by uh, secessionists for their unionist views. Uh, and then after the war, you had they were f- uh, at the forefront of labor organizing. Many of the uh, haymarket martyrs of, of the uh, yep. first May Day, the bombing in Chicago, were, uh, were German. Uh, and that radicalism uh, was not... It was going against the current of the American, you know, project at that time, and so uh, it had to struggle in a way that the more quiescent political currents in other, you know, white ethnics at the time uh, weren't. Yeah, and it's um, yeah, exactly. I mean, I know uh, in in Milwaukee in particular, like it was pretty much exclusively Germans that were involved in a really, really powerful socialist movement there, yeah. and 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 um, it's hard to see the backlash against German Americans, which we'll get into in a little more detail, um, the backlash, especially during the World Wars and the First World War in particular, it's hard to see that without a bit of the context of the radical political views, right? It seems yes. like a, a bit of a bit of two birds with one stone, like say they're loyal to the Kaiser, but it's actually you want to like get rid of some socialist agitation. Uh, I mean, from- it, because the, the, the anti-war sentiment of German Americans during World War One, at first was very strong, as it was for like the broad sector of the American population. Like most Americans didn't want to join fight in World War One. Uh, Woodrow Wilson famously campaigned in, uh, for re-election in 1916 on the slogan "He kept us out of war" before going "Oops, psych." Uh, and then you know the the first modern propaganda machinery was put to work getting Americans on board, and f- for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, cultural af- and and uh, ethnic affinity being one, but you know, uh, socialism being another. Germans uh, resisted, and uh, they were uh, repressed in that. There were there were actually lynchings of Germans uh, who showed insufficient yeah. deference to the war effort, and it led. And uh, famously, uh, sauerkraut was renamed Liberty Cabbage. Uh, That's a joke, World right? No, oh, no, joking. no, literally not a joke at all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they yeah. started changing no. street names. I know in Cincinnati they started tra- changing a lot of the street names. Yeah, uh, th- there's uh, a s- suburb of Milwaukee that is 
currently, and I always grew up hearing it pronounced uh, New Berlin. I don't know if you ever yes, heard of New yeah, Berlin, Ber- Berlin, Berlin. Yeah, they would say it really funny. I remember yeah, ma- meeting people but, from there. Yeah, yeah, New Berlin, which uh, that was obviously used to be New Berlin uh, until people thought that was a little too, uh, a little a disloyal. So they, they decided to, instead of going through the trouble of changing all the stationery and the signs and the maps, they just decided to change the way they pronounce it. I think in, in Michigan, they might've renamed the Berlin there to like, um, to like Basel or burn or something to try to, to try to like conjure a different image. Um, and yeah, I mean, at this point, you already have kind of a backlash, right, against uh, what like Teddy Roosevelt called hyphenated Americans. That you yes. only only have full Americans. Um, the during the war, the the Justice Department they prepared a list of German aliens, uh, counting almost a half million, and four thousand were imprisoned. I mean, we we associate like internment camps and imprisonment, obviously, with the Japanese Americans in World War II, which was on a, a much higher scale. But uh, this is this is really nothing to scoff at and the thousands um some of this is just from the the wikipedia here which is actually quite quite extensive on the topic uh they say thousands were forced to buy war bonds to show show their loyalty during the first world war yeah yeah it's uh isaac did you have some want to jump oh in? i was just i was just gonna uh jump in with the whole renaming thing to say that there's like quite a large city in southern ontario called um kitchener that used to be called berlin uh, for like quite a while, it was it was known as Berlin, and then it was renamed around that time to to Kitchener, and it still has like a huge, I mean, huge German population, of course. But yeah, that's interesting. I guess there were a few a few uh, hung on, right? You still got your Bismarck in uh, in North Dakota. Like, there's a there's a weird mix of like very German sounding ones, and then these like awkwardly renamed towns, and and like you said, this is this is kind of the like key hinge point in in like when the the assimilation really begins. Um, obviously, World War II is important as well. But like the World War One is the critical thing. Right? There were eight. Um, Matt, you kind of alluded to this. There were eight hundred German language publications in the United States at the end of the nineteenth century. Um, Omaha, Nebraska, had fifty-seven percent Germans in nineteen ten. Like just you know, really, really some very, very concentrated pockets, and and of course, especially just in the, in that broad swath of territory that we were talking about, the just uh, Germans, Germans all over the place, really. Yeah. So you have. Uh, in a way, some things that are feel a bit reminiscent of how people are treating Russian culture today, things that we look back on. I remember in like U.S. history class in high school, going through some of the things that you said, Liberty Cabbage, you're like, that's so ridiculous. Can you believe like who would who would do that? It must have been only those barbaric idiots 100 years ago. Uh, they started not playing uh, Wagner in German uh, in, in the in the symphonies. They started um, renaming, like you said, renaming street names. They started, yeah, like renaming foods. Um, and removing, now we have like a Kiev mule. Yeah. Of a <laughs> Moscow mule. Re- removing German books from the library in St. Louis, for example. And so really odd parallels to this kind of hysteria we're getting now with Russia. Um, sort of showing that uh, this this idea that, that we learn from history or, or things kind of get better over time maybe, uh, maybe isn't the case. Yeah, no, just a cycle of idiots on a wheel of dumbassiness. Exactly. Yeah, and we're not even fighting in this one this time, and we're we're still getting that into it. So um, we just love it. We 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 we're like, oh, we got to get in on this. It's so much fun. And it's like, no, no, no. But it was bad then because it was nationalistic, and now we're supporting freedom. And it's like, exactly. Don't you think that's what they said back yeah. then too? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> do you think they democracy. were just like, we're being xenophobic, everybody? Let's be xenophobic. It's like, no. Like, obviously, they're using the same like liberal justifications that we hear now, and like. Woodrow Wilson being the president at the time, I think, is, is quite interesting in the way that he has kind of parallels to the the Obama-esque uh, leadership uh, of later on of, you know, 
even like you said, Matt, campaigning against the war and then oopsie, let's uh, do a bit more war a few years later. And yeah, overall, you know, like thousands arrested um, and just, yeah, renaming, uh, discouraging the teaching of the German language in a lot of um, in a lot of regions of the U.S., which is really, really strong. These pockets were only German was spoken, um, you know, Wisconsin famously. And and I believe this is something I remember from a a class in uh, in college. Actually, Uh, we did like a Wisconsin history. They they said they they called Wisconsin the traitor state in uh, in 1917 when war broke out. And then to demonstrate their patriotism, they volunteered and bought war bonds in the highest percentage of any state in the union. So they're just sweating. Like, is this okay? Is this okay? Please, yeah, please, please. I'm American. Come on, come on. Just just getting down on the knees. And uh, and like I said, this is really that that crucial point. Uh, in time where where you really get that full swing from like a strong identity and whole areas where there was only German spoken. I mean, there was, um, I believe in Wisconsin right before the war, there was uh, 25% of the state spoke only German and no English. Mm. Like just really, really crazy. Um, yeah. So then you get Schmidt to Smith, Muller, uh, Muller to Miller, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which is why you have like relatively few like German sounding names, despite how, how common they should be. And in the interwar period, right, you have a bit of a softening of the attitudes, kind of like a, a German culture is allowed to, to spring up a bit more. You obviously have the, um, like you mentioned, the, it's like some just full on Nazis with the, with the Bund. Um, and, yeah. And that's uh wait what was that about can can somebody Matt, do you want to explain? I think. You, <laughs> yeah. You know so uh, in, in the lead up to World War Two. There was, again, a very uh, strong current of uh, anti-interventionism that was bipartisan and, and all throughout the country. People, they were annoyed and pissed off that they had gone into World War One, and they're like, we're not going to do that again. Uh, and there was, among German-Americans, a very strong resistance to uh, entering the war, once again, with, due to all those ethnic uh, connections. Uh, but the most vehement uh, opponents of entering the war were... Uh, Germans who were not just, you know, against foreign entanglements, but who were actively supporting the Nazi state and its project in America. And they formed an organization called the German-American Bund, uh, which had rallies uh, against entering the war. Uh, They would do street violence against uh, Jews. They had a famous uh, rally in Madison Square Garden, uh, oh right! Yeah, yeah the, yeah, the pictures I've of that seen. are pretty famous. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Meyer Lansky, uh, the Jewish gangster from New York, uh, spent a lot of the '30s beating them up at the rallies. Apparently, him and him and the other uh, guys would like uh, throw stink bombs into the into the meetings and then uh, punch punch dudes who came out with uh, brass knuckles. Yeah, sort of a. A little street fighting, uh, paralleling, I guess, a bit what was happening in Germany at the time, but somehow swept under the rug historically a bit more than you yeah. uh, you get but from portrayals of Weimar. But interestingly, the Bund was largely a East Coast phenomenon, as I said. Like they had the big rally in Washington, Square, uh, in Madison Square Garden, and it, they were very uh, active in Yorkville, and they actually uh, created some Nazi summer camps on Long Island. No uh, way. <laughs> that, and there's like, there are small, once like, and uh, forever cursed <laughs> private towns in, there's like a small, there's a town in Long Island, I think, that to this day has like streets named Himmler and stuff. Uh, what? Has, yeah, I don't know. I think that they recently like were forced to uh, get rid of their restrictive housing covenants, but yeah, they've, they were, they held out for a long time. But 
relatively little of that stuff uh, on the in in the Midwest, like in the German heartland, probably because they've of their har- harsher experience of having their you know more uh, coherent German identity being uh, squashed uh, earlier. And also, and maybe also the, the class the fact that, that a lot of their political uh, uh, energy had been directed into like a socialist project that yeah. wasn't dead by that point. You know, uh, Milwaukee famously, as Alice Cooper said, had three socialist mayors, including a mayor who uh, uh, governed Milwaukee all through the 50s, the height of the Red Scare, uh, named uh, Frank Zeidler, uh, who was a, a member of the Socialist Party. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's obviously important to, to sort of distinguish, right, like Germans not being a monolith, as we mentioned before, you know, the different different class elements, different waves. And uh, I think that that obviously plays into to the, the political views as well. I mean, sort of more uh, not not as wealthy of people kind of moving, like you said, to the more inland Midwestern areas and maybe not sharing these these exact political views um, of the sort of broader kind of social base of fascism, this like yeah. petty, petty bourgeois groups. And yeah, you know, of course, the, the war does break out, uh, Germany declaring war on the U.S. day after Pearl Harbor. And like I said, not as famous as the repression against Japanese Americans, um, not, not as infamous, I should say, but still interning uh, about 11,000 German citizens between 1940 and 1948. So it was going after the actual people with German citizenship, not the like pretty well, which is still ridiculous, but not the extremely barbaric thing that was done to Japanese Americans where they just had been there for generations and just were full American citizens and didn't speak Japanese and had a U.S. passport. But, you know, yeah. uh, some some echoes of that, obviously. Yeah, I mean, like uh, the, the the German effort to to uh, assimilate between the wars clearly worked, you know, like, yes, yeah. you have much less repression of uh, Americans with German heritage. Uh, and you actually had a guy with the name Eisenhower in charge yeah. of the entire war effort. <laughs> yeah, Chester Nimitz, you know, so on. Like a lot of a lot of uh, very high-ranking people involved in the war, and you you actually get these pretty heroic portrayals, right, of German Americans um, in in kind of popular media, right? There's always a Band of Brothers, or I think in Saving Private Ryan, you always got the one German-speaking guy that sort of like helps out the the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was there as they're marching through France and Germany in World War Two, and it's sort of like. Uh, it seems to really like symbolize this idea of immigration and like they became the good immigrants and the 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 people that then fought you know the the homeland for for freedom or whatever and it really i think has become a kind of american mythology about like the the good immigrant that learns the language and assimilates and so on and i've i've heard um some of my like grandpas uh you know, I, I used to go out to sometimes with breakfast with them when they'd uh, I'd visit him and they got all, all the old guys out eating breakfast. A lot of them are old Germans talk about, you know, talk about the, the old country and whatever, even though they don't speak a lick of German. And they'd say things like, well, it's different today, you know, with Spanish, like none of them are learning. Uh, none of them are learning English. They're staying in these pockets in these communities <laughs> and refusing to learn it. And it's like, just like we said, there are hundreds of German language newspapers, hundreds of thousands of people that didn't speak a lick of English yeah. like before the war. And so it's like it, it's not like all white people assimilated as fast as you think, man. Like it's, uh, it's, it's, it's funny though, how it's framed politically in the, in the present day. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to imagine that, that 
that they did it differently, that their families did it differently. And honestly, they did because they came at a time when there was no such thing as illegal immigration. Yeah. That is the funniest thing when people say my grandparents, my ancestors uh, did it the right way. If you showed up, you were an American. <laughs> yeah. It was it required. No, you didn't have to do anything. I'm not you against immigration. To, I just think as long as you were an anarchist <laughs> and had tuberculosis, they let you in. Oh my god! Even a few anarchists got in with the Haymarket. Yeah, thing, well, you, you just know? got to lie. That's the beauty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They just asked you. It's like, hey, don't tell them. How about that? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, uh, I guess it's a good screening mechanism for getting a relatively smart people who are. Yeah, they used to say to uh, anarchist says what? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think. I think that it kind of takes us through through most of the history, and now I think it's it's probably makes sense to like reflect a bit on the the current state of it. I um, mean, then you know you know after the war, right? You have um, a, a sort of a, a broad like reconstruction and resurgence. I think of the acceptance, uh, I should say, acceptability of German Americanness as Germany becomes you know a NATO ally against communism, and sort of you get the, the the Wehrmacht actually kind of be itself being rehabilitated with its like clean Wehrmacht myth and so on. And I think the the status of German Americans then kind of goes up. Um, obviously, you have some quite famous German uh, um, immigrants to the U.S. With uh, Werner von Braun uh, and the uh, yeah, <laughs> a few a few other characters. All those that... Project Paperclip guys. Exactly. Yeah, um, getting uh, getting the old Nazis to help us with our technological skills to yeah. To apparently, fight the uh, Soviets in in the fifties and sixties, there were uh, a disproportionate number of German restaurants in Huntsville, Alabama, which is where uh, you know the NASA rocket program was headquartered. Because of all the all the the von Braun as, uh, associates who had been brought over to work on the program, ah. they wanted somewhere that they could get some uh, some pig knuckle. Good stuff, yeah, and um, you know, pretty prominent in a few like a number of academic disciplines. Obviously, you know, you have some pretty pretty well known um, German academics that helped really found a lot of like the modern international relations discipline. You have like Hannah Arendt, of course. I mean, Einstein came over. Like, there's there's a there's a the list goes on. I mean, if you click like. It, important German Americans. It's like you'd spend forever reading it. Like there's so many, um, you got like kind of modern influence, uh, athletic, uh, modern gymnastics came. <laughs> okay. So, you know, thank, thanks Germany for that. Uh, what is it? Uh, Friedrich Ludwig Jan, like, uh, the, the founder of, uh, gymnastics, kind of a proto fascist himself, uh, has gymnastics itself has pretty, uh, sketchy origins <laughs> as like, let's all build, let's all build fitness and strength. This podcast is anti-gymnastics. Like it's, uh, it's not really what you associate <laughs> as like right-wing politics now, but that, it has roots in that. Um, yeah, German, German speakers in the U S you know, uh, almost 3 million in 1910 going down to about a million today, but still like that's a lot of people, you know? It I mean, is. I would hear them well, in Pittsburgh. Like, yeah. you're just, like, walking down the street and you hear a German speaker, but it's clearly not, like, either a native speaker who grew up in Germany and learned it there, and it's also not an American-speaking German. It's, like, this weird blend yeah. of the this kind of accent. I mean, you can, like, go look at, like, the, the Pennsylvania-Dutch right. kind of blend that There's exists. Wisconsinite German, too. Yeah. That's its own dialect. Like, there's a whole bunch of different weird dialects that mix a bunch of um a bunch of like different elements of german english and other languages i mean they're out there my my parents <laughs> they met in cincinnati and they said uh, everyone when they would when they would hand you something like a beer or a, a plate of food or something they would say please 
And they were like, well, what's with that? And then when I came over here and learned German, I was like, oh, mom, that's because you say bitte when yeah. you give someone something that's in German. So it's a translation of that. And so they yeah. still say it there. Yeah. yeah. Weird hangover. <laughs> yeah. Very, very bizarre. So it's like there's these there's these faint traces. Right. Like we said. But yeah, no, uh, you know, no complaining about, uh, you know, anti-Italian discrimination or, or anything like that. Um, it's the. Yeah, well, I mean, they, you know, the Italians were the last ones into the boat of whiteness at the yeah. turn of the century. So, you know, they've, they've got that uh, chip on their shoulder about it <laughs> to this day. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, like I said, uh, you know, thinking a bit, maybe reflecting a bit about the, the weird ways in which that culture manifests itself. And, you know, I'll, I'll quote here from a couple of secondary sources uh, this guy, uh, Melvin uh, Hawley, writes, um, as we kind of mentioned, public expression of German ethnicity is nowhere proportionate to the number of German Americans in the nation's population. Almost nowhere are German Americans as a group as visible as many smaller groups. Just just to show that, you know, this is this is academic saying this kind of stuff, not just us like riffing about this. It's really, um, really quite true. And I mean, in a way, like uh, you think about uh, basically our last two presidents um donald trump claiming to be swedish forever when he's actually german and joe biden i believe having german roots right but yeah. always going on about how irish he is well that's the thing is like if you have a like a little bit of if you have like one grandparent who is irish and everybody else is german you're probably especially if you want to be a glad-handing word healer in uh the east coast in the like late 20th century you're definitely going to emphasize the irish yeah over the german absolutely and um i have a little i have a question that maybe it doesn't pertain right now to like specifically what we're talking about but maybe going back to sort of the the german immigration and settlement like was there a region of germany where like immigration mostly happened from like was it mostly from the south was it from like uh, the west well, was there a I specific mean, uh, area it, 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 it you had different waves from different areas like i i and i and i don't know that much about this but i'm, I'm i think that uh the first big wave that hit the Midwest uh, was from Southern Germany, which is why it's so much Catholic Germans. Uh, like the, the German triangle I'm talking about, uh, those Germans were predominantly Catholic. The cities of Cincinnati, Milwaukee, and, and St. Louis still have you know this, this German Catholic identity that's still part of their greater framework. The biggest uh, Oktoberfest outside of Germany is in Cincinnati every year, called Zincinnati, they call it. Uh, uh, and in fact, the fillet of fish was invented in Cincinnati by a McDonald's franchisee who saw every Friday that he was getting <laughs> annihilated. Nobody was coming in to eat any burgers, so he thought, "How am I going to get these freaking uh, these these Catholics to come in here and eat?" And he said, "What if I get what if I fry some fish up?" And then the corporate took it up and and, and nationalized it. Uh, wow. but so you had like the, the, the big first, like mid-century wave is from, uh, Southern Germany, the, the, the German Catholic areas that were at that point, uh, dominated by Prussia, uh, politically yeah. dominated by, by Lutheran Prussia politically, and were chafing under that, uh, resentment. Uh, and then Prussian immigrants, I think came later in, in the, in the century. But so I, uh, I grew up around and, and my background is, is German Catholic for that reason. Yeah. And there were also specific little pockets. Like, for example, you have like people from like Rhineland Pfalz coming into like parts of the Northeast really quite early on before um, American independence. Yeah. You have some people well, those from people like Franklin was pissed off. about. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have people uh, from Swabia who actually were some of the few Germans that ended up in the South. So I guess they they liked uh, staying in the South, you know. So, um, but yeah, like you said, Matt, like there's the, it comes in all these different waves. It's quite complex. Exactly who moves where, and now it's um, but the obviously the the Lutheran um, yeah the Lutheran Catholic debate being uh, yeah like, like the, divide uh, being big. They you can sort of see it in the in the. Like the geography, because yeah, like uh, Wisconsin, the coastal area is lar- is predominantly Catholic, and then as soon as you get a couple counties in, it becomes uh, predominantly Lutheran because you had. But then that's also when the Scandinavians started showing up. So yeah, especially uh, as you get to Minnesota, right? It starts yeah, getting real exactly, Scandy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I'm sure yeah. plenty of those Lutherans were also yeah Prussians also as well. I guess the uh, I guess the Bavarians were used to all the lakes there, so they wanted to be close to Lake Michigan, and the yeah. the sort of more inland uh, inland Protestants were a little more happy with uh, a similar area. Yeah, of Wisconsin. it's like, can I just get a big uh, sandy plain, please? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's like the. That, that sort of belt that we talked about, right? It really parallels like the parts of America that have a climate kind of like Germany. Is basically yeah, what yeah, it exactly. Is. Although I was really surprised. Like I was just in uh, Texas and I was like super surprised by how much German American, how many German American communities there were in Texas, uh, especially like San Antonio. Um, I was super surprised. I was just in San Antonio, Texas, and I was so surprised by how many German Americans I encountered there and how many like German American towns there were around there. Like I went to yes, this place the called hill country, Green. the hill country between at Austin and, and San Antonio was yeah. a uh, was a, a huge migration spot for Germans. There's there's a bunch of German towns still there where the German is spoken. Uh, LBJ uh, during his presidency took I think Willy Brandt or Conrad Adenauer, one of those one of those guys, uh, to the the Texas Hill Country to show him you know all the all the uh, uh, the beer halls and, and the bratwurst and stuff. Uh, yeah, so that's like a, that's probably the, like the most concentrated area of German uh, settlement in the South is that hill country area of uh, of uh, like west cent- central West Texas. Yeah, I was in this place called Green, which is actually spelt like Grüne, like G R U E N E, and went to this like very German like beer hall where you could buy like Spaten and you could buy like this beer called Shiner Bock, which like is yes, made in Shiner Texas Bach, but yeah. like tastes exactly like a German beer. It's like very yeah, very peculiar. I was not expecting that in South yeah, Texas. Yeah, they also had a uh, a water slide chain that was started in Texas called Schlitterbahn. Yeah, yes, I saw that too. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. Have you guys ever heard of Helen, Georgia? No. No. So I, we were on, uh, Chapel guys, we were on tour uh, last month and we drove from uh, Charlotte to Atlanta and we drove through to the north, uh, north Georgia, uh, the old, which had been like, a, it had been the site of the first gold rush in American history in the 1820s and then was, uh, a logging economy for years after that. Uh, and there's this town there called Helen. Uh, and in the sixties, the sawmill closed down and the economic engine of the town was, was winding out and they were all worried. What are we going to do to keep people here to keep it vibrant? And the town decided because there was a German uh, artist who lived in the, the town, they said, Hey, what if we just let him go hog wild and turn the town into like a Bavarian village. And so the entire this little town nestled in in the in the woods in North Georgia is entire the entire downtown area is all in like that that classic, 
you know, German half timber style. And they've got uh, German bars, rest, they got the uh, beer halls, uh, and they just said, hey, that'll be our deal. We're, we'll be the place to go if you want to just like, spend, a, spend a day in Germany. And it, apparently it was a big success because we were there, uh, you know, in a spring day. It was kind of rainy, uh, and it was, it was packed. People were going to town because at the end of the day, uh, that German uh, public culture, the beer hall stuff, the stuff that made them so resistant to prohibition, uh, and so hard to integrate into the post-war Republican con- political coalition that was all yeah. about, you know, Protestant uh, uh, propriety, really is uh, pretty fun. You know, it's like how, we we sat down and I had the big bratwurst and I had the beer and I just said to everybody, I was like, "How can you stay mad at these people? Come on!" <laughs> well, we sure, we sure, we sure, like, didn't. We day, sure didn't. We sure didn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, it's it's funny you say that because yeah, I mean, when we, we were talking about the sort of a pretty mixed bag politically of the group, uh, you know, obviously uh, a bit of a very strong anti-slavery sentiment, um, a bit of fascism later, a lot yeah. of socialism. So, like, it's tough to, like, generalize about, like, what political influence they've had overall in the country. But very strong anti-prohibition uh, force in the U.S. So, yes. And they also, they tried to keep alive in America for a lot, for, uh, you know, for a long time, uh, a public, like, communal culture. Uh, like they they created these things called the Turner societies, which were these yeah, like I wanted uh, to mention that yeah the, the yeah these like uh, socialist infused and inspired communal halls where they would come together to to try to like you know maintain a sense of community life, and they also of course had the beer halls to do that, and you know the entire time they were doing that, it was against the tide of sort of America American atomization, uh, and. You know, they held out for a long time, but I think, yeah, the pressure, the political pressure caused by, you know, the resistance to socialism, uh, by the world wars, uh, and the fact that, like, Germanness did not have a political, uh, economic valence the way that other ethnicities did, uh, meant that even with all of that real, you know, energy to to maintain a, a, a social world, the 20th century was just going to was just going to wipe it all away. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean it's it's funny you mentioned this town in Georgia, Matt, um because it, there's a very very parallel town in my home state of Washington, uh, Leavenworth, Washington. Yes, uh, I've I've driven through Leavenworth. Yeah, yeah. And it's I wonder which came first and, and probably, it seems like one must have copied the other because it's also yeah. a declined logging town and the yes. way I, I read the history of it, it was like the 1960s and they realized yeah, the industry was drying same up. Time. Yeah, the industry's drying up. They they don't have much going on anymore, and they actually looked to uh, Solvang, California, yeah, as an Danish example, town. the yeah. weird Danish town, which is weird because yeah. it doesn't look like Denmark at all there. But yeah. they made Leavenworth look like a Bavarian town, which kind of makes sense. It's on the east side of the Cascade Mountains in Washington. There's like a so uh, they have the backdrop. So as a backdrop of these beautiful uh, mountain peaks, there's like uh, pine trees. It kind of looks like a Bavarian. Uh, like mountain town, um, even with has the river flowing, which almost has that kind of bluish color that your alpine rivers have, that like blue green color. So it kind of checks out in terms of the the actual scenery. And they went complete thematic. Like there's this little core town, even the like rich people houses outside of it uh, along the river. You know where people like like to go skiing or do other outdoor activities. And like Seattleites will own homes there. It's kind of a nice place to be, even though it's a bit tacky. Um, but they're they're like the same exact theme. 
And it's funny, like they'll have, there's all these bars, like you mentioned in the other town, they actually get the like Oktoberfest special kegs shipped in because like, you know, every beer tent in Munich uh, during Oktoberfest will have this like own like Festbia Mm -hmm. and they'll actually get the like authentic ones like shipped in there. And and people, people like going there and like one of, one of my theories about it, and it ties into what you were saying, Matt, of like people kind of missing this communal identity. Yeah. But it's one of the only walkable rural towns in the whole state because they build it like an old village. And so you can yeah. walk from your hotel to the bar, to the other bar, to the restaurant, and you're in a like contained community. Yes. And it's like America can only build walkable cities if they're building like either literal Disneyland or Disneylands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It has to have a, a foreign reference or else it'll just end up sprawling out without that guiding it and shaping it. I went there a couple of years ago and I was like, it, it's sort of like a joke among like people in, in Washington. Like it's, it's sort of a bit like, like gauche or anything to like, to like it, you know, people are like, Oh, come on. That's so tacky. And I was there and like, I grew up like always thinking that I was like, this is actually kind of nice. Like almost nowhere in America, especially in the West coast. Can you just like walk from bar to bar? Like it's, yeah. it's actually kind of good. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to worry about crashing into anything or, uh, having yeah. to like call a car. You can just, you can just, Perambulate while hammered. Exactly. Walking while well drunk. It's legal. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I know um, you know we can uh, we can start to start to kind of close things up here. I don't want to take too much of your time, Matt. But um, I know Isaac, we you wanted to, to talk about the the, the, the Mennonites. I'm and sorry. So, the Mennonites. No, no, we have to. Uh, well, no, just just give me a second to to preface this a little bit. I'll just I'll just read a little bit from the Wikipedia here because they sort of highlight the like core regional groups of the of some kind of bizarre uh, German communities that still exist. To this day, German speakers can be found in the United States along long established Anabaptist groups, the Old Order Amish, and most Old Order Mennonites speak Pennsylvania Dutch or Bernese German or Alsatian. Um, along with High German, Hochdeutsch, uh, as people say more, um, though they're generally fluent in English now. The Hutterites speak Hutterite German, and many Russian Mennonites speak, speak Plautdeutsch, a German dialect coming originally from the area around Danzig, uh, now Danks, uh, Poland, as we talked about on our last episode about the the Odenice line. Um, Three Amish dialects, as well as Hutterite German, are still learned by all children of the group, whereas Plattdeutsch speakers tend to spend uh, much more time in English. Another group of German speakers can be found in the Amana colonies in Iowa, um, and about uh, only 67% of them speak English. So to give you an idea, there's still these communities where there's really a lot of German spoken or like certain types of German that's still spoken quite a bit. Uh, but Isaac, do you want to chime in about the Mennonites a bit? Yeah, I just I mean I just wanted to talk about the Mennonites because they're my sort of like pet uh favorite or pet interest among the the German uh immigrants, German speaking immigrants in North America. Uh I mean especially growing up in Winnipeg, like in 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 Manitoba, there's a huge huge Mennonite population. The Mennonite Church of Canada is actually based in Winnipeg, uh and it's sort of like almost a running joke in the city that there's like 10 sort of Mennonite names. Uh, and if you like, you're bound to like, you run into people with these names all the time. It's like Friesen, Taves, Dirksen, you like know, uh, automatically that these people are Mennonite. Um, yeah. And so I just wanted to kind of mention that, um, I have, I have a few little notes about it, uh, and also, this is you know the, the little Canadian section of of, of this episode. <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I guess. Uh, 
Well, and can I, because I mentioned the uh, the Berlin, which then became Kitchener in, in southern Ontario uh, before. And that was actually, like, I think initially founded by Mennonites who had moved from, from Pennsylvania. And this was, like, sort of the Pennsylvania Dutch. Um, and they were uh, in opposition to, like, the American Revolutionary War because one of the main, like, tenets of this Mennonite religion is, is pacifism. So, um, but, I, but I find this, like, Mennonite history and, and how they arrived in, especially, like, the region of Manitoba, uh, and then other regions in the U.S. like kind of fascinating because it's not your typical like kind of migration pattern that you maybe associate with German Americans or German Canadians. Um, so yeah, the first Mennonites arrived from Pennsylvania in like the late 1800s uh, or sorry, late 1700s. Uh, but the majority then arrived uh, over the next 150 years came actually directly from from Europe. But most didn't come from from Germany. A lot of them actually did come from from Russia, especially in Canada. Um, you know, you mentioned this sort of Russian Mennonite group, um, which initially uh, sort of moved from the sort of Mennonite heartland or whatever of like northern Germany to uh, like Danzig, this area of like, you know, East Prussia or whatever. Um, and then in the 1850s, the Russian state invited them to settle and form communities in uh, Russia. And then with the Russian Revolution, and this is the history that I find like super, super fascinating. Um, so there, there are farms and other properties, of course, were expropriated after the Russian Revolution. Uh, and they were sort of persecuted because of their pacifism, but also because they were considered to be the sort of upper class of like privileged foreigners who you know were living in uh in yeah this this the russian state and so which this led to a wave of immigration to uh canada the u.s and, and paraguay which is strange and then with the world war ii a lot of these russian mennonites perceived germans to be their liberators uh, and collaborated with the nazis often by like openly helping to persecute their jewish neighbors i mean it helped that they had this sort of like common language that they shared with these Nazi uh, quote-unquote liberators. Proud, proud tradition of uh, various uh, European ethnicities moving to Canada to be fascists. Right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so then that also spurred like another wave. And, and it's so funny to me because growing up in Manitoba, there's this like uh, perception that Mennonites are like, yeah, these pacifists, that's what we all know, uh, and that they're like super kind of politically progressive, like especially the urban Mennonites, so this real kind of split, I think, between Mennonites who like live in the cities and Mennonites who live in still these very kind of conservative, isolated colonies where they still speak like Plattdeutsch and... Um, but in the cities, they're seen as like, yeah, these sort of super progressive uh, people. They're often involved in like lots of activist causes. Um, but then it's, yeah, I was really interested uh, or it's interesting to learn that, you know, a lot of, yeah, this, this history of their immigration is actually steeped in this, um, yeah, alliance with, with Nazis and their persecution because they were seen as these uh, upper class foreigners, Nazi collabor collaborators, um, and and then yeah, a lot of them were also accepted back to Germany uh, in during the, the the Nazi period as like the Volksdeutsche. Um, so yeah, I I just find yeah, this is my sort of I also like two of my ex boyfriends are are, are Mennonites, so I like huh. really always found it fascinating to like go and visit their families. One of them lived in like a very small Mennonite community, oh and they were like super super homophobic, super um, like still a lot of them spoke this like sort of low German. It was just like a fascinating kind of world. Uh, an hour it's from like a from remnant, Winnipeg. right? Yeah. It's just like the um, the Pennsylvania Dutch, yeah. which. The funniest thing I find about them is like the Amish, they make their own like wooden toys. And I babysat for this German family that visited the U.S., got one of these like wooden 
things created by the Amish and we're like so excited about it. And it's like, that's your own culture that you like supplanted and then brought back. And they were like psyched on this wooden toy. They were like, look at the craftsmanship, like trying to get me to like nerd out about like a wooden thing. The the Amish are so weird, right? Because they're like, well, we're going to, this is like the pure culture uh, that we need to preserve but it's like frozen at a very specific point in time like I guess like late 1700s early 1800s or something where they're like no no we like all of modernity up until this point but nothing past that um, my my dad used to used to work in um in a hospital there and he said yeah they would come in and then renounce their uh, renounce their sort of traditionalism quite quickly uh, as soon as they, they needed medical care which makes sense but yeah, I think uh, I think that that probably covers covers most things now. Um, but just a, a few more a few more thoughts on uh, on on the influence of the Germans. I mean, it's too bad to, you're on the West Coast now, Matt. So it's probably a little early to to share a beer and uh, and say Prost. Uh, but oh, never uh, too wh- early. I would absolutely where do where, where where would we be without uh, without the Germans for for beer in America? Right? Obviously, it's true. The, the we oldest were a bunch one. Of cider drinking wasps before they showed up. <laughs> People don't know that, but yeah, yeah. Like the American the American alcoholic drink of choice was was cider. It was yeah, really the I didn't Germans know that. I showed up and said, "What are you doing? Uh, get some <laughs> weed in there." Yeah, <laughs> you've got obviously Yingling uh, out of Pennsylvania, the first brewery in America. A lot of familiar names will be Schlitz, uh, Pabst, Miller, uh, Anheuser Busch, uh, so on. Um, so yeah, all the all the big breweries uh, coming from the Germans. And then lately, something I did not know, apparently a lot of uh, German immigrants and German Americans uh, helped shape the microbrew movement in America that swept the U.S., which is funny because the microbrew scene in America is a lot more developed than in Germany. So thank the Germans for your uh, quadruple cruise missile bullshit IPAs. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, anything else, Matt? Uh, I thank them for the resurgence in... uh in wheat beer, I I really the, the, like the only you talk about like where do you feel like you know German and I don't I'm an American, but I I do have just like a visceral preference for like a bready Hafeweiss. Yeah, that yeah. just feels to me like that's got to be some sort of genetic memory. I don't know. <laughs> the past, the the epigenetic passed down, yeah. right through the yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I I would like to I would like to thank the Germans for for a great export of a man uh, being, of course, Henry Kissinger. So I think absolutely got to give we it can, up for him. Yeah, got to give it up for Henry. Michelle, any thoughts? I think that's it. You know that uh, somebody said about uh, Richard. I forget who said it, but somebody said about Richard Nixon, uh, who had. Direct lines on his phone to three people: Kissinger, uh, his uh, chief domestic advisor John Ehrlichman, and his chief of staff H.R. Haldeman. And they said Nixon talks to three people in a day, and they're all Germans and uh, hated Jews uh, in good good tradition with uh, with, with some <laughs> of his predecessors from that country. Yeah, that's uh, that's the Germans. Um, uh, I think I don't know mixed mixed bag. You can't say mixed that much bag. bad you know, stuff it's about America. it. It's, yeah, mixed bag at best is what you're looking at basically yeah. everywhere. Yeah, exactly. You know, thanks for the water slides. I guess I think but. they've. I honestly think they've acquitted themselves better than the Irish. That's where. That's all I'll say. And I honestly kind of appreciate just the acceptance of like Americanness, not this like bullshit like, hey, I'm Italian. Like yeah. it's just like, no, you're not. Like shut up. You couldn't speak like you couldn't order a fucking pizza in Italy. Like shut up. You're American. Commandatory. So, yeah, exactly. It's like it's like at least there's a bit of honesty there. You know, it maybe didn't come from the best uh, the best origins, but uh what are you gonna do? That's it. 
Yeah. All righty. Well, thanks everyone, and thanks thanks so much to Matt for for coming on. Um, obviously, uh, co-host of the podcast Chapo Trap House, which I would guess most people know. Um, but anything else you're working on that you'd like to plug? Uh, not yet. It's in the works, but uh, yeah, right now just just the show. Okay. Well, that sounds great. Um, but yeah, uh, thanks so much, Matt. I really enjoyed that, and uh, you're uh, bringing your experience and and knowledge about this uh, about the old Germans to uh, to the pod. Yeah, thank you very much. It was fun. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks again very much to Matt Chrisman for joining us. And thank you all for listening. Just a quick reminder to follow us on whichever podcast app you are using to listen, if you are not doing so already. That way you'll be notified as soon as we release new episodes. And also a reminder that we do have a Patreon where we are trying to release a couple bonus episodes each month. We have 10 episodes up there right now for you to listen to, including a series on German companies during World War II, a mailbag episode, a couple foreign policy bonus episodes, and two episodes of our new series, Spaßbremse Grenzen, where we explore the history of Germany's borders. You can access all that and some more perks for as little as five bucks per month. And to those who already support us over on Patreon, thank you very, very much. We truly appreciate it. All right, that's it from us this week. We should have another episode of Spaß, Bremse, Grenzen on Patreon next week and another episode here on the main feed the following week. Or maybe sooner, who knows. Thanks again for listening. Tschüss.